Welcome to the final episode of season one of Emerging Environments. For this last episode of the first season, we're speaking with Mark Kadat. Mark, who is also my PhD co-supervisor, completed his PhD in ecology at the University of Tennessee in 2006. Following some postdoctoral work at the University of California, he joined the Department of Biological Science at UT Scarborough. Throughout his academic career, Mark has been a prolific researcher, receiving several awards for his work. Recently, he's been named on more than one occasion as one of the top 1% most cited scientists in the field of ecology. And as a result of his impact as a scholar, he was recently appointed to the Royal Society's College of New Scholars, Artists, and Scientists, which honors research excellence and academic leadership. Mark's research group focuses on a number of topics, including the ways that biodiversity affects how ecosystems function and how biological invasions can disrupt those functions. More recently, he has been focused on how these questions play out in urban ecosystems. In that regard, he is leading a global network of researchers that are collaborating to examine these questions in different urban centers around the world. Mark has also been highly involved in academic publishing, first as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Applied Ecology for several years, and now as the editor-in-chief of the new journal, Ecological Solutions and Evidence. In our chat with Mark, we talked about his exciting new research, which straddles the worlds of ecology, human health, and environmental management. We also spoke about the unique mission of his new journal, the significance of interdisciplinary science, and broadly about the academic publishing landscape. It was a pleasure to speak with Mark about his stellar career and to learn about his trajectory from the fundamentals of ecological theory to applied research for urban sustainability. And thanks for joining us for this first season of the podcast. Stay tuned for season two early next year. So with that, we bring you our conversation with Mark Kadat. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Karen. Thanks, Stu. It's great to be here. So um, before we get um, started to talking about your research and all the cool science you're doing, um, we'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and, and how you got interested in, um, in science and, and an ac- a career in academia. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question because whenever someone asks me where I'm from, I always have to take this pause because... Uh, up until moving to Toronto to be a professor, I've never lived anywhere more than about six years mm. in my life. Uh, so yeah, I was born in Southern Ontario in Windsor, but my childhood was in Hearst, which is in Northern Ontario. And then high school years in, in Chatham, which is again in Southern Ontario. Um, and then I, I, uh, I did my undergrad and master's at the University of Windsor, but I worked in Madagascar Oh, wow. Time and then PhD in Knoxville, Tennessee, postdoc in Santa Barbara, <laughs> lived in China, lived in Japan. So I've just, I'm, I'm kind of a global citizen. But, but I guess the, what led me on this course of my life in terms of my intellectual interests, I think was really my, my childhood in Hearst, uh, where a lot of my formative years were spent. Um, and even after I left Hearst, I still went back in summers to stay with my dad. And Hearst, for people who haven't been there, haven't heard of it, it's uh, it's basically as far north as you can go on, high, on a highway in Ontario. And uh, in this small town, um, we were surrounded by nature. Uh, you know, I would go outside in the backyard in the morning and there'd be a bear or there'd be a moose in the backyard. Um, a forest was at my doorstep. And, and I thought this was normal until I moved <laughs> to Southern Ontario which is like 97% converted into agriculture and urban areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized uh, my, my understanding of normal was quite different than what other people thought of as normal. And so I've always had this attraction to understanding the natural world and the way we impact it. So you mentioned that you, you did some research in Madagascar. What, what led you to uh, that part of the world? That's kind of an interesting story because I was all set to do a master's in Alberta on, on forest fire ecology. Mm. And, um, and then someone I, I knew, a professor I knew, uh, sent me this opportunity to go to Madagascar to, um, 
participate in some projects there. Uh, it was basically as an NGO in the UK that was um, that was researching an area that was going to be uh, uh, destroyed by a Canadian mining company um, as they were searching for uh, uh, titanium dioxide. And so they wanted people there just to, to just to do research. Yeah, in this uh, in the southeastern part of Madagascar and to the natural mm-hmm. history, and so I was like, "Oh, that's a great opportunity!" And I looked into it, and you know, uh, this NGO would supply a place to stay and some help and stuff. So I went to my um, potential supervisor. I'd already been accepted uh, to go to Calgary, and uh, and I approached him and said, "Oh, there's this really cool opportunity. It's forest still, it might be different." And he said, "You know, it's really outside of my area of interest. I wouldn't be that mm-hmm. comfortable." And so my uh, my undergrad supervisor at Windsor basically said, "You have an opportunity. Just go. Uh, just do your masters here at Windsor. I'll support you." Mm, okay. Um, and so it was it was it was, it was it, for me it was a really um, life altering experience as a you know a young twenty something just picking up and moving to Madagascar for eight months and mm-hmm. literally living on the edge of a rainforest and um, carrying out some research projects on. Uh, on forest fragmentation and tree diversity, but it was uh, you know, it really changed my perspective, not just on science, but on conservation and uh, how people interact with nature around the world and um, you know, different types of, of problems um, that might exist in different places in the world. And so it was, it was, it was really cool. And when I first went there, I thought, you know, I'm going to be a tropical conservation biologist. And by the time I left, I said, I'm going to be a theoretical ecologist. <laughs> because because the, at the time, I, I perceived the problems as being so intractable and so complex that I felt like it was almost overwhelming. And, and, and I, I sort of wanted to focus in on sort of the more pure science because I thought that's where I can learn to solve problems. It's mm. hard to start at the complex problems. Um, you know, because in Madagascar, it's obviously it's history, it's economics, it's poverty, it's mm. food issues, it's you know, uh, World Bank, it's in, you know, it's right. global corporations, and you can tackle that. I think once you have a better sense of yourself, a better knowledge base, and all that. So it was it, for me, it was it really changed my trajectory. Hmm. Interesting. So it, yeah. So it sounds like you kind of interested in focusing in on like the pure science that will help to inform, you know, decision-making around these kind of conservation issues rather than kind of being at that, that end of the spectrum, I guess it sounds like. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of different ways in which we can contribute to uh, understanding and helping solve global environmental problems. And for me, it's really from a, a science first perspective, which is to understand some of the fundamental principles um, that structure ecosystems in order to understand the ways in which humans have had impact and in, in, in order to develop strategies. And, and that's not to say, you know, other aspects are, are any less important, but that's the, that's the area I'm, I've always been most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe you could tell us then a little bit about kind of the, the themes of your research group right now. Um, my research uh, is is fairly diverse, um, and I think it's because my background is on very conceptual, very theoretical type of ecology, and it can be it can be applied to a lot of different problems. And that's sort of what's happened in my research career, and with my with uh, you know with with students I've collaborated with and other uh, groups that I work with is you can kind of take some of these fundamental tools and uh, apply them to lots of different problems. So. We work quite a bit on uh, trying to understand the mechanisms that uh, generate, support, or enhance biodiversity at the ecosystem level. We also try to understand how changes in biodiversity influence the functioning of ecosystems. We also try to understand you know, very specific types of uh, human effects on ecosystems. So, for example, um, species invasions, urbanization, disturbances. How those alter the mechanisms that uh, that uh, affect uh, biodiversity as well as ecosystem functioning. So we we try to take this very fundamental approach to understanding what structures ecosystems, what allows uh, species to coexist, what structures the types of diversity that we see, and then ask why does that why does that matter, right? Why does biodiversity actually matter? Um, and so we try to look at 
these changes, these uh, effects and changes to, to biodiversity at multiple levels. Mark, you've done a lot of public outreach in the GTA, the greater Toronto area, and uh, I guess globally now as well, expanding on your self-identification as a global citizen. You've been around the world sharing your work as well. I wanted to ask you if, um, I guess in talking to the public specifically, has there been a certain aspect of the things that you've been working on that has you know, gain more traction with them or certain things that they are more drawn to from all the various things that you work on? Yeah, I think with talking to people, um, it's not to say scientists aren't people, but to, to talking to the broader community of, of, of humans out there, um, often connecting them to their everyday experience is very helpful. So often when I talk about urban environments and types of organisms, that gains a lot of traction. But what what really uh, brings people in, I find, is uh, our discussions about invasive species. Um, and so this is a topic that a lot of people are interested in or concerned about. Um, and, you know, especially here in Toronto, um, you know, all gardeners have to deal with uh, a couple of plants like dog strangling vine or garlic mustard that are imported from Eurasia um, that are everywhere in the urban landscape and very difficult to remove. Um, lots of people in Toronto have experience with uh, the die-off of ash trees from the emerald ash borer that's imported from from Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year, this is actually a really good year. I mean, I wish it wasn't COVID and I could be talking to people in person. Um, is that we right now? And you know, as I sit here at the University of Toronto Scarborough and I look at my window, there's no leaves on the trees. Uh, we've had a massive uh, gypsy moth outbreak in the city and gypsy moth was is an imported species that arrived in the 1960s and we get these periodic outbreaks where it'll essentially strip every leaf off of oak and maple trees willow trees um, and lots of people are really concerned about that right now so when i give talks i often show these you know pictures of well-known invasive species and people have lots of opinions about them and want to talk about them and then what i do is i i always show the last picture a really cute picture of a cat just to highlight the fact that you know we have opinions about invasive species, we often uh, you know uh, immediately think of the thing we hate the most, but it's actually a really complex problem, especially in urban landscapes. Um, we often um, uh, bring in certain non-native species, we support them, we like to garden them, we like to raise them as pets, uh, and so it's a very complex problem. But it, but it's one in which I find that the public is really likes to engage with. Yeah, we had um, the author Emma Marison not that long ago, and she has a nuanced perspective on the issue as well, but she's not a fan of the term invasive as it sort of implies, you know, causality and pointed out that, you know, there's ethical issues that arise as a result of that type of terminology where, you know, people might be more willing to inflict um, harm on, you know, sentient creatures if we're calling them invasive, which is probably true. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on the, you know, the terminology related to that topic? You know, I, I've been around long enough now in, in science to see uh, changes in terminology on a number of fronts. Um, and even the word like alien species, uh, for example, which is still quite popular in Europe, is, is looked down upon in North America, um, especially in the U.S. because of connotations of, of uh, uh, immigrants coming to the country and stereotypes, etc. Um, my feeling is that, you know, language is, is important, um, and as a scientist, I'm happy to use terminology that um, fits the problem and fits uh, you know, societal expectations and responses, um, as long as we define it. You know, as long as it's defined as as something that has a, a robust definition that we can study. So, for example, with invasive species, you know, invasive species have often have very specific definitions about um, about their ability to spread and have uh, economic and ecological impact. As long as we use a term that has those definitions, uh, I'm personally fine with it. And I think part of that comes from being a global uh, scientist and working with people in different cultures and different backgrounds that use different terminologies for things. I think as long as we agree on the definition. So uh, I can understand the point of view that uh, a term like invasion, invasive species might uh, invoke certain responses in people or agencies. Um, uh, you know, that said, um, I think what often sticks more than the term invasive species is, uh, is more of a sense of nativism right? That's what often uh, elicits the strongest responses in people. So, you know, if you look at, 
public campaigns in places like Australia and the UK, they often talk about our native species and not belonging. And so I'm not sure the word invasive is the problem. Mm. Uh, if, if that is the concern is about how people respond to them. I, I, I think there's a wider sense of, of nativism and what belongs and what doesn't. And, um, and quite often people get it wrong. Right. So there are lots of examples of non-native species here in the city that people would believe as, or, or feel that belong. Um, so, I, so I think the problem is something a little bit more fundamental than the term. Mm-hmm. But that's just my point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, you know, as, as a non-biologist in the conversation, I guess maybe I could ask some sort of more fundamental questions about, you know, why biodiversity is important. And, um, and I know that you, you work on sort of some aspects of looking at not just, you know, the number of species and, you know, the biodiversity of a region, but how species co-evolve together and how that affects, you know, ecosystem function and health. And I guess I'm just curious to know a little bit more about, you know, why, why that's important and, um, and uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So biodiversity is an interesting concept because we often use it as a catch-all. It's uh, uh, variously defined as um, as the variation in life at all levels, from uh, differences in genes to, uh, to differences in, in in maybe you know traits or uh, aspects of species, to differences in the numbers of species, to differences in ecosystems like a rainforest to a desert. Um, and so, biodiversity encapsulates all these things. So, in some ways, biodiversity is a bit of a clumsy concept, but at the same time, it's really powerful. It's it's clumsy in that we have to specifically define it every time we use it if we're, if we're uh, undertaking a study. But at the same time, it's very powerful because it, it's a, it does a really good job of taking a, you know, a, a complex concept and making it simple and tra- translating it into uh, everyday speak or even policy. Um, so that said, you know, biodiversity as the variation in life is, is important for several reasons. It's important because um, uh, I guess the easiest reason why it's important is that um, it might matter uh, in terms of how well the earth functions, how well ecosystems function, the ability of ecosystems to uh, uh, to perform um, um, certain basic functioning like sequestering carbon dioxide, cycling nutrients, filtering water, etc. As we lose biodiversity, uh, as we degrade biodiversity, ecosystems start to become a little bit compromised in their abilities uh, and to do um, these functions. Um, biodiversity is also important uh, because you know, if we're concerned about extinction, um, you know, and so often when we talk about extinction, we talk about specific species, but biodiversity is fundamentally important for extinction because even if we're concerned about a single species like a panda or an elephant, uh, they're in- interconnected with uh, all sorts of other species and organisms and ecological processes. And so you can't really stop extinction unless you're adequately protecting all of biodiversity. The final reason why biodiversity is important is is a more complex one, but there is an ethical, moral, philosophical uh, conundrum is that, you know, through our activities, we're causing a degradation in biodiversity, we're causing extinction, we're causing uh, the loss of ecosystems. And the fundamental question is, you know, do species, does natural systems and processes have a right to persist uh, independent of our wishes and, and will? And we exert our, our wishes and will over the, the earth. At some point, uh, we become responsible for the decline and loss. And for many people, that is, um, that is a reality that they're not willing to accept, or at least they want governments and uh, organizations to try to, try to combat. Um, but back to your, your your other part of your question about uh, about what we do um, and how we conceive of biodiversity is you know traditionally in ecology um, the primary measure of biodiversity was species richness so the number of species that we might see in an area or an ecosystem and the reality is that the number of species doesn't do a particularly good job of telling us everything we want to know about a, a system. And why I say that is because historically, uh, uh, ecological research might ask a question like, why do we see more species here and less species in this other place? And try to answer that question. 
but a lot of the mechanisms that ecologists would invoke like uh, organisms partitioning niches or um, or the role of uh, you know environmental gradients or disturbance or the role of pathogens and predators all these different mechanisms um, could conceivably create two systems that have the same number of species but differ in some fundamental ways and so by understanding other aspects of biodiversity, like um, the types of traits that organisms have, um, like how they're related to each other, how much genetic diversity there is, we can often come up with a better understanding of what's structuring, uh, what's, what is actually structuring uh, ecosystems. So just as an example, we might have uh, an ecosystem that has some sort of stress. So let's say it uh, has water stress. Um, so we need species that are drought tolerant. And so we end up often in those circumstances getting species that are quite similar to one another. Um, so they have similar types of uh, adaptations to deal with drought. They might be closely related. So you can think of the desert, you get a bunch of cacti. Well, those cacti are actually all really closely related. Then you go to another system that doesn't have that stress and it could have the same number of species but we, then we realize that the, spe the species inhabiting that second system are much more diverse. They come from you know, very different evolutionary lineages. They have different strategies, different traits. And so by viewing uh, communities in these more complex ways as not just being the numbers of species, but differences in how similar they are to, to one another, the types of adaptations they have, then that can really help us understand how these systems are actually put together. What are the, what are the mechanisms that, cons that, that underpin the diversity in this system? And then if we go in and we're disturbing it or disrupting it, we then know how to put them back together. Mm -hmm. And one um, component or maybe type of uh, biodiversity that you've been focusing in on a lot lately is uh, in urban ecosystems and urban biodiversity. I was wondering if you could tell us about your work there. So I know you have the Global Urban Biological Invasions Consortium. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. So I made this conscious decision to shift to urban ecology. Um, one is a pragmatic one, which is, you know, I'm at a big university in a big urban area. And so it's just really convenient um, to work in an urban area. We can engage students and people much, much easier. But there's a, to me, there's a really, important fundamental reason that um, I shifted to working in, in urban systems. And it goes something like this, like, uh, so I'm in a department of biological sciences and many of my colleagues study some aspect of human biology. Uh, for them, the ultimate outcome of, of studying humans is, uh, is thinking about some sort of pathology, thinking about something that might disrupt the system. So a disease, um, maybe a, a, a genetic mutation that has uh, negative consequences. Uh, and to think about, you know, a future patient and how we might make their life better, how we might solve um, their health issues. Well, for ecology, for too long, we just studied uh, natural systems um, uh, to understand how they're put together. And that's really important. But if we were to sort of make that next step, we really need to think about our sick patient. And for me, the, the sickest patient is an urban area. It's an area that's fundamentally transformed from what it was before. Um, we see massive losses in species. We see uh, you know, inability of urban environments to handle excess nutrients or pollutants, uh, uh, inability to support large populations of certain types of organisms. And so it's, for me, it's the place that we can really apply ecology uh, to make things better, to help solve problems. And not only are we solving problems for species and ecosystems, but we're also making life better for people, right? Cities are built for one reason, to house people. And so often people in cities experience degraded environments, uh, whether it's you know, poor air quality, poor water quality, uh, higher temperatures, um, et cetera. And so if we can make cities a little bit better environmentally or ecologically, then that will help improve the environments that people live in. So I, I just feel like urban environments are just this natural place to apply a lot of what I do and a lot of what I've learned to try to make a situation for people better. So you mentioned several what we would call kind of ecosystem services of, you know, urban vegetation. Um, can you talk about some of the sort of specific aspects that you're working on? Do you do you focus on a particular function of, of urban ecosystems or? Um, yeah. Yeah. So in urban areas, um, we know 
that we have a pretty good sense now of the type of benefits that people derive from uh, nature in cities. And we often define, describe these as ecosystem services or benefits to people. And some of them are economic, some of them are quality of life, some of them might be uh, aesthetic um, or spiritual. But you know, things like sequestering carbon dioxide, uh, helping absorb excess rainfall, filtering out pollution, generating healthy soil, supporting pollinators, um, supplying natural pest control. When you have complex food webs, it helps keep populations of pests under control. Um, they provide food, recreation, um, and as I said, aesthetics and, and inspiration, educational opportunities. So there's a, there's a lot of benefits that we, we derive from ecosystems. Our work specifically um, looks at um, how changes in diversity within, say, green spaces in urban areas might impact the, the ability of those systems to supply those services. So we will specifically measure um, the amount of carbon that's being stored annually in systems. Uh, we'll measure uh, aspects of soil nutrients. Um, so cities are places that produce excess nutrients. Or you know, for example, the, um, through certain industrial processes, we're producing uh, extra nitrogen. You know, how does that affect systems? How does it get absorbed? Uh, we'll look at uh, supportive pollinators uh, and other uh, types of organisms that might depend on plants. And so everything we do starts with plants. And we see plants as the, the basis upon which an ecosystem is built. And if something causes a change in the biodiversity of a green space in terms of the plant diversity, we can measure all the cascading effects. And so our, our, our sort of outdoor laboratory that we've really been looking at for the past decade uh, is in the Rouge uh, Urban National Park. So it's a relatively new national park uh, on the edge of Toronto. Um, it's designed to be a little different than the rest of Canada's national parks. It's designed to be an urban national park, which is to engage people, um, capture multiple types of land use, etc. And so we use this because it's also heavily invaded um, uh, by an exotic vine, uh, the dog strangling vine. And there are parts of the park where this vine forms dense monocultures that excludes almost all the other plants. And so we're able to look across these, uh, these gradients in plant diversity and see how this invasive species and how changes in diversity scale up to changes in, in, in ecosystems. I can attest to all that. I should say, Stu um, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> was, was a former PhD student of mine, and he really got the system off the ground. Lots, mm -hmm. of, lots of trudging through those monocultures, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen some of the field photographs, and it's pretty, um, yeah, yeah it, it's shocking in a way how they develop over the season. Mm -hmm. I was particularly interested in, in yeah, how, how the invasive species play into that. Cause as you mentioned, kind of the, in the urban environment, these can really, I mean, well, outside of the urban environment as well, but they often start, you know, the introduction or often starts in, in urban environments. Um, and so you're part of this, um, this group, the, the Global Urban Biological Invasion Consortium. And so we were interested to learn a little bit about that group and, and how it got started and, and what sort of what maybe synergies or differences you see in this invasion biology across, across the globe. Yeah, that's, it's, it's been a really, uh, uh, for me personally, it's been a really fascinating exercise. And um, how this all started, so... I was at a meeting in South Africa in 2016 with other invasion biologists and, and we started talking about urban systems. Uh, and this is with scientists around the world. And we all had this, this realization that we actually know very little about the role of cities in moving species around the world and helping uh, species establish themselves and spread into other systems. Despite the fact that we all live in cities, we just have this fundamental lack of information um, and you compare that to what we know about invasions in, uh, say, national parks or protected areas. We know quite a bit. Um, and that's where they're traditionally studied. And so we realized, you know, there are really some important fundamental questions like, uh, what is exactly the role of cities in moving species around? Um, and so if you're just to picture the globe and you're to picture the movement of goods or people, you would draw a network from city to city. So it's obvious that's where species are moving to because they're following trade and people. And then in cities, 
we know that we alter the environment in such a way that might reduce competition for new species. So we, you know, we garden, we mow, we uh, remove species. So some species get established and they just don't have a lot of competition. They're able to proliferate uh, easily. There might be lack of herbivores or predators in urban systems. So we've created these environments that are simpler, that might allow species to establish and spread much more easily. Um, and so we have these unique environmental conditions in cities as well that might be selecting for certain types of species. And then because cities are places where people um, start and move out from, they might be bringing species with them into other types of habitats and other places within countries. And so we know that cities have this, this important role to play. And so we had some really fundamental questions like, what is the role of climate, right? So if, I have, if I'm looking at a city in the tropics in the city of Toronto, for example, um, do they show similarities in the dynamics of non-native species moving in and moving from them? Uh, or is there something different? Um, what's the role of history? Does the 2,000-year-old city uh, show similar patterns as a 150-year-old city? What's the role of uh, politics, of economics, of trade, of uh, how diverse a region it is uh, in terms of the species that are there to begin with? And we realized with these people around the world, we actually couldn't answer any of those questions. And so it was really important uh, to bring them together. So I was able to get funding from the University of Toronto uh, and created this, uh, this global consortium that, that now has about 120 uh, scientists around the world um, uh, and all continents except for Antarctica involved that are working in cities. And we've compiled, to date, we've compiled about 750 data sets uh, from cities around the world. So we're entering the next phase. We're actually going to analyze things and hopefully start to answer some of these questions. Um, but but we've really been able to pull people together, synthesize information, uh, and really make a concerted effort to answer some of these really important questions about the role of cities in, in changing biodiversity around the world. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, I liked your analogy, the human health analogy and the the patient, the urban ecosystem as the patient. You know, it made me think about um, the idea of interdisciplinarity. And I was, I was curious about your thoughts on that. You know, do you, how important do you see interdisciplinary science and perspectives for some of these issues that you've been working on? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and undoubtedly, um, interdisciplinarity has become much more important as fields like applied ecology and conservation have also become uh, much more important globally in both science and in policy. And so these, these fields, um, in order to come up and develop solutions and, and address problems, uh, uh, necessarily need to be interdisciplinary. They need to pull in aspects that include human perspectives and uh, sociology, economics, history, um, uh, etc. And so, just in my own work, it's it's increasingly become interdisciplinary. So, and this is something I I wouldn't have predicted back when I was a PhD student. I was you know I was um, my head was buried in books and really thinking about ecological theory, um, but now we with our projects, we will do social surveys to try to understand what, what people think about biodiversity or what they think about invasive species. Um, we work with non-academic partners that are trying to develop invasive species management plans. And to do this, we need to address public perception, political will, uh, economics, uh, you know, organizational structure, all these things that are outside of the science, um, but are in many ways just as important as the science. Um, and my most interesting inter interdisciplinary studies has happened rather recently. And I'll just tell you a little bit about this. Um, uh, so I, I, I work closely with a, with a, a, a sociologist. And one of the things we become inter became interested in was, was trying to share methods between disciplines. So, you know, he works in sociology. And they, have, they have certain types of methods. And we're trying to think how we can apply those in ecology and vice versa. And so we've had some workshops and we, we, we put in some grant proposals. And one of, the th one of the ways we're going is we bring together ecologists, sociologists, engineers um, to apply ecological analyses to understand city diversity in terms of its form and function, why cities are different from one another or why they're similar, you know, how this is caused by history, by development, um, or by climate and environment how this diversity in cities, how we, you know, we measure it using ecological measures, but how that can translate into um, livability of cities, the environmental quality of, of, of cities, uh, access of people to green space and stuff. So 
it's you know to study something as complex as a city you have to be interdisciplinary you, you simply can't just approach it from an engineering point of view or a green space ecological point of view you have to bring all these things together and it, mm -hmm. it really opens new doors to not only understand systems but potentially provide uh, recommendation guidance for management and policy yeah maybe that's a good lead into um the the nature-based solutions report that you just uh, published with the british ecological society i think so you co-authored a chapter or the lead author in a chapter on um the built environment and nature-based solutions so i was wondering if you could tell us you know what is a nature-based solution yeah nature-based solutions uh, is, is is a broad concept but at its core it's really about um, trying to come up with new uh, management and policy solutions that uh, that that build off of opportunities that allow you to address um, global change, biodiversity, and societal issues all at once. So it's kind of like trying to bring together these different uh, phenomena. So so global change being you know global climate change. Uh, you know, movement of non-native species, et cetera, big drivers of change, trying to protect biodiversity and trying to make uh, the world a better place and more livable for, for people. And so nature-based solutions, um, because they use these three different lenses, will see a development, um, whether that's in a city or a rural area, or um, it, could be, it could be small in scale, it could be quite large. But the idea is that you have all these priorities simultaneously, um, and that the outcome then should be measurable in terms of, um, you know, if we're talking about a city, in terms of uh, helping increase the resilience of the city to climate change, helping provide opportunities for biodiversity, and, and helping make the environment or the economics better for, for people that live there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So based on um, the work that you did as part of this, this report, um, can you tell us a little bit about that? what evidence there is for, you know, the um, nature-based solutions um, helping cities to adapt to climate change? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. And it's really, you know, this has been happening a lot over the past few years in cities uh, in different places in the world. Um, and so the idea is that your, um, you know, the priority might be, for example, climate change and trying to make a city more resilient to climate change. And that could include a number of different types of, uh, of interventions, but it's really those, those other aspects are important as well. So including communities, uh, understanding community priorities, um, understanding how people might want to engage or benefit from. Um, and so what we often see um, as an as a output of nature-based solution type activities might be things like enhancing uh, street trees um, is, is an easy one that's commonly done. So, you know, if you ask people that live in certain cities where there's not a lot of trees, that, that would probably be almost uh, uh, issue number one for them in terms of the environment. Um, and so uh, urban trees, for example, provide a lot of carbon sequestration as well as benefits to people and biodiversity. Um, and so, you know, there are examples that we use in this uh, nature-based solutions chapter that show that, um, for example, uh, a medium-sized city, like the city of Leicester uh, in the UK, covers only 0.03% of Britain's land area. But because they've planted so many trees in there, um, it accounts for about 10 times that amount um, in terms of its carbon sequestration. So here's a city, trees are planted for multiple benefits, and now you have this hotspot of carbon sequestration. Um, and we know that in, uh, 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 also in Britain, that its current carbon storage is, you know, a couple hundred thousand tons um, and uh, annually, and almost, uh, you know, the vast majority of this is in urban trees. And so that's a fairly easy one. Um, another example might be, for example, in, uh, in cities where there's a lot of office buildings and, and people working office buildings, um, there might be an uh, incentive uh, for employers or, con or construction or local policy to uh, enhance uh, the well-being of those people by having green roofs, giving them opportunities to walk out, to look upon green roofs. There's lots of research showing that um, the ability to access or even see green roofs from offices uh, improves the, the, the work quality and the enjoyment that people have in their jobs. And at the same time, uh, these types of infrastructure um, not only help sequester carbon dioxide, but they, they actively cool buildings um, through evapotranspiration, through shading. Um, 
and they can they can reduce energy costs um, as another way that that we can increase resilience to climate change. Um, so we have cooler buildings, but also means we're using less carbon to to cool those buildings as well. So those are examples of of you know types of interventions we've all we've all heard of. I mean, we've heard of street trees, we've heard of green roofs, but we can put it in a context of of a larger picture that allows us to see how they can have multiple benefits and explicitly accounting for those multiple benefits is really important in nature-based solutions. So it's not just enough to put in some trees and say, okay, it's better. Um, in order for nature-based solutions to work, you have to be able to account for all those benefits. And that's more than just carbon. That's, you know, uh, are these street trees providing habitat for birds that people like? Uh, are people's homes uh, cooler? Are they enjoy are they going for, are more likely to go for walks? Uh, um, in the summertime? And the answer to those is typically yes. In in that accounting for those uh, benefits of those nature-based solutions, do you think the economics of all that has caught up with what we, everything you just mentioned there and listed off? Do you think the economics are there yet? That's a, that's a really tough question. Um, and I mean, the, I mean, the short answer is no. Um, but yeah, obviously the, uh, the, the detail answer is more nuanced, but, um, you know, there are a number of organizations, both governmental and non-governmental that are trying to put dollar values on the benefits derived from urban nature and nature-based solutions. And the vast majority of these attempts are done in earnest, right? I have no, no problem saying that, um, the, the, it could be open to some nefarious actors to show that, you know, the cost, uh, the benefits from nature-based solution are less than say developing, um, property or land. That's, that's a risk. Um, but by and large, there's other protections than economic ones on, uh, on spaces and cities. Um, and so the accounting is done in earnest. Um, but they're usually done either in a, uh, when it comes to trees as an individual tree approach. So this tree provides this much value through uh, pollution, through carbon sequestration, et cetera. Um, or they're done on sort of broad scale surrogates, um, just looking at types of different types of green space and what are the, the benefits we derive from that. Um, I personally think a lot of those activities undervalue um, the economic benefits. And let's even just ignore the non-economic benefits. Um, like quality of life, like inspiration, like education, et cetera. Uh, I think they undervalue economics because when you have these ecological systems, you have multiple trees together, not just individuals. They often uh, have interactions like facilitation, like niche partitioning. And so together they tend to do things better than when they're alone. So we account for the benefits alone, um, but when they're together, there's actually something additive and emergence to a forest that doesn't exist when you have a bunch of individual trees. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think uh, a lot of those, uh, those economic assessments are necessarily very conservative. But even with that, you know, with that proviso, they tend to show there's a lot of value um, in urban nature relative to, say, other activities. And so... Uh, so, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think they're helpful. They're certainly helpful to policymakers and politicians that need to justify. And that's usually where I see them being used is in justification. The motivation is already there to do something. They just provide extra justification. And so in that sense, I think, I think they're, they're okay. Um, but we can certainly be doing better job at, uh, at valuing uh, green spaces and nature in cities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I kind of have an obscure question about urban trees and something that, you know, I'm kind of ignorant about some of these things. And I was in a, a meeting, um, I'm involved in a project with um, ta some tower communities in Toronto and, and you know, addressing questions of, of climate change resilience, or at least attempting to. And one of the things that came up in the discussion was, um, you know, how certain urban trees are only meant to have a certain lifespan, given, you know, the extent of the root systems and how that it becomes a complex issue. And, you know, when you've got pipes and concrete and all this kind of stuff. And I'm wondering, like, to what extent, you know, are we limited in the amount that we can increase the greenery of an urban of a very established urban community for example like in some of these really old cities that you were talking about um, or new cities um, I thought I was really surprised about about that aspect but of course it makes sense once I sort of thought about it but um, how does that play into um, what we can and can't do in terms of 
of green space? Yeah, that's a good question. In some ways, there's a lot of um, inertia in cities. Because so much energy and material have gone into building them, um, they're difficult to change quickly. There is turnover over time. And so I think that in some ways we are limited. Um, but, you know, cities around the world have these uh, ambitious agendas of like uh, doubling their urban canopy. Um, and they've already, they've already identified that there are, there are plenty of spots in a city um, that this can be done. And just think of all the places that, you know, city agencies mow lawns. Um, and it, you know, the realization is that half those lawns don't need to be there. Um, they could be forest. They could be some other type of vegetation. Um, they could be, you know, managed in a way that uh, is alongside other types of, of uses. Um, so there are some good habitats in cities that still have deep soils and everything that still can still house um, trees. But at the same time, there are a number of other creative ways that we can move forward. And one of the best examples uh, comes from Singapore. Um, which is, is always seen as at, at the front edge, the leading edge of nature-based solutions in cities. And the reason is that Singapore is basically a city country. It doesn't have space to grow. Um, and that it has a pretty strong environmental ethic. And so what we see in Singapore is they've done away with traditional zoning in many ways. So here, you know, in Toronto, we have commercial, we have industrial, we have park, we have institutional, we have residential. Um, but why can't you know, nature and park be part of any other zone? And so what you see in Singapore, for example, when they do a major development is it, in, it necessarily includes green. And so as examples, they, they, uh, they built a hospital a few years ago where you can't tell where the par park stops and where the hospital starts because the first couple of floors, the vegetation just comes into the hospital. The roof is a uh, very deep green roof where there's, there's, there's gardens, there's trees, and it's part of the landscape. There's infrastructure there, but the green has become a part of it as a fundamental part of that. Another example from Singapore is the, you know, they have flooding. And so in the Bay, um, they, they build these giant locks that, um, that you know, when there's rainfall, they'll 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 basically put a dam across to to stop flooding or allow water out. And here in Canada, traditionally, if we built something like that 20 years ago, we can all picture it. It'd be a gray building with a fence around it that you can't go to. It'd be surrounded by a parking lot, and it would, you know it'd be environmentally dead. There, um, you're walking along, and it's a sloped roof where the the park just goes up, and it's the roof. And so it becomes park space. You can't even tell it's 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 you know very industrial infrastructure, um, and that green is necessarily a part of it. So if we started in places like Toronto or New York or Atlanta or London or Paris, we start thinking about any development there there necessarily includes green. What are the creative ways that we can do that? And we go beyond just say planting street trees. Then it goes to what are how are the different ways that nature can become part of this infrastructure? Um, what are the really creative ways that we can ensure that we have you know healthy mini ecosystems growing on the sides of buildings or on top of buildings or within buildings? And when we start doing that, as development proceeds and cities are constantly turning over um, different parts of the city to development you can include more and more green so that those traditional boundaries between commercial, residential, industrial, and uh, green uh, disappear. Mm -hmm. Shifting gears a little bit, I thought we could maybe talk about your experience in science publishing, which you've been immersed in for quite some time now as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Applied Ecology for several years and now a new venture. And I was wondering if you could tell us what that is and um, what's, what's the mission associated with that? Yeah. So, yeah. So I was, uh, uh, the, like I said, I was the editor in chief of uh, Journal of Applied Ecology. And, and, and before I tell you about the next venture, I'll tell you a little bit about what happened there. And so mm -hmm. Journal of Applied Ecology um, is a really uh, high profile journal and it receives a lot of submissions, uh, but it rejects about 80% of the papers that are sent to it because it's, it's prestigious and uh, and so many papers just, you know, the competition for space becomes more and more intense and, and it ends up just uh, really publishing the most high quality, most general, uh, most widely applicable, most novel types of papers. Mm. And what happens when, you, when, that, when that happens uh, is that 
for applied ecology or conservation, there becomes a little bit of, a, of an issue, which is that on the ground, applied ecology and conservation often needs a lot of local level, uh, very specific type of information, articles, science being done. And you sort of get this little bit of this disconnect. And, and so at the British Ecological Society, which, which published the Journal of Applied Ecology, um, I brought this up and thought, you know, it's time for us to do something else to ensure that we're still providing a, a voice in a space uh, for on the ground applied ecology activities uh, and conservation, ensuring that practitioners and, and policymakers were getting relevant information. So what we did was we, uh, we created this entity that's called Applied Ecology Resources. And Applied Ecology Resources includes different information types. One of them is an academic journal called Ecological Solutions and Evidence, but it's an open access journal that will publish anything that's technically sound. It has, you know, has no limits in the number of uh, articles that we can publish. Um, it's open access, it's freely available. And so the idea then is that anything that, no matter how local, how specific to an applied problem, no matter if the results are negative, that you know, we tried this intervention, nothing happened, that's still publishable. Mm -hmm. and it supplies information. The other part of applied ecology resources is a great literature repository. And one of the other things that we, we realized early on is that um, practitioners and NGOs and government agencies are doing a lot of activities and producing information that never makes it into the peer review process. Uh, so there's reports, there's case studies, there's um, you know development of, of best management practices, there's fact sheets, there's all these things that are being produced by individuals and organizations um, that live and die on someone's computer. And many, much of this information doesn't end up in a, a permanent repository. It's not searchable. It's not discoverable. It's not citable. You can't attribute it to the person who created it. So we create this great literature repository that allows for, um, uh, for organizations and uh, agencies and individuals to submit their great literature so it also becomes part of the permanent record. And, mm -hmm. and our ultimate vision of, you know, of, of what this will look like is that a practitioner who's developing a management project will go in and do a search and they'll get information that spans from peer reviewed articles to, um, you know, assessments of, of on the ground interventions to, uh, you know, designs of interventions to all those different sorts of information, all of which combined can provide a lot of value to that individual or that organization that's trying to develop a new project. Mm -hmm. Very cool. That's yeah, super cool initiative that the bridging of the, the great literature with the you know, more hardcore science for lack of a better term. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. I had a, a general question about academic publishing where it, it seems, judging by Twitter, which I don't know if it's a, an <laughs> accurate, accurate source or not, but uh, there's a lot of interest in identifying, you know, biases and, and trends in publishing with respect to, you know, inaccessibility and, and these sorts of things. I was wondering, you know, if you've had any direct experience with that as, as an editor across your, your tenure. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, and um, it's, it's across multi-axes, really. Like it depends what we're we're talking about. So, uh, as editor of journal Applied Ecology, we actually did um, uh, an internal process, and we ended up publishing a paper uh, from this. And what we did was we took all the papers that were published or were submitted and and published over some number of years, and we looked at um, the country of origin of the of the first author, and looked at rejection rates, uh, publication rates. Uh, and then compared that to um, how often papers are being downloaded from those countries as well. And we do see these, these geographic inequalities, right? So mm -hmm. some, some countries uh, might be submitting a lot of papers, but they also have very high rejection rates. Whereas some other places like in Australia, United States, and, and the UK uh, might have much uh, higher acceptance rates or lower rejection rates. And so as a proportion, their articles are getting published uh, much greater. And there's lots of reasons I'm sort of, in this paper, we, we, we try to delve into some of those, those reasons. We, uh, we do analyses that look at, you know, proportion of people that, that speak English, uh, amount of uh, uh, investment by governments in science and education, all these, all these types of things. But at the end of the day, there is this, there is this inequality um, geographically. Mm -hmm. And that led to a lot of uh, introspection um, from the British Ecological Society. And we've, we, we've actively built in some programs now to support authors um, from, uh, from countries that typically have a more difficult time publishing. 
Um, so we, we offer some uh, more language support, more editorial support. We've also uh, uh, have funds to uh, do workshops, regional workshops in different, different regions of the world to bring people together um, so, that, so that they can discuss scientific problems and work together and try to facilitate collaboration, um, uh, you know, provide workshops on how to publish, um, you know, how, to, how to do applied uh, research, etc. So we're really trying to uh, facilitate that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some of the other areas of, of publishing and, and inequality are, are uh, some of it's more systemic that an individual journal struggles with. So for mm -hmm. example, subscription fees versus open access fees. Um, a lot of those are, you know, out of the control of a single journal because it's, it's publishers and it's this, the publishing uh, landscape and structure that really determine a lot of those. Mm -hmm. um, we do try to, to try to make information as, as available as possible. And sometimes that involves us, um, uh, I don't I wanna say this politely, but it involves us arguing with the publisher mm. and advocating for change. Um, it sometimes requires us to do things on our own monetarily to ensure that uh, articles are accessible uh, or that, that authors can publish their material but uh, right now it's a very uh, imperfect publishing world and um, and I know the solution the solution is that um, the global community just pays for it that is like uh, UNESCO and UN or some intergovernmental organization uh, uh, you know creates journals and everything is published for free I mean that's that's the only solution that works Mm -hmm. uh, anything else where there's uh, private for-profit companies involved um, anywhere in the pipeline uh, inherently makes it uh, inaccessible uh, to some people. No matter you know, no matter how much we might, you know, publishers will add in um, waivers and discounts and all these types of things. At the end of the day, it's it's an unequal system, and it's not just geographic. It's not just uh, you know um, uh, Peru versus Canada or something like that. Because even within Canada, for example, and this is the thing I, I try to remind people, is that you know early career researchers don't have access to funds to play, pay for open access. Mm -hmm. um, people who are outside of academia, um, so practitioners who are working for a small NGO, won't have money or subscriptions to pay for publications. And so, you know, I might be relatively secure in the University of Toronto and I have funding and I can pay for those things. And I have, you know, university with lots of subscriptions, so I get access to articles. But a lot of other people out there, even within Canada, um, don't have the full access to the publishing landscape. And so at some point in the future, it has to change. And the solutions that are being pursued right now, uh, they're fairly piecemeal. And I don't think they solve the problem, but maybe someday, uh, if enough of us keep bringing up these problems that um, there will be a solution. Over this conversation, it, for me, it's kind of become clear that, you know, things are shifting in terms of, you know, the type of e ecological research that people are doing. And I think even, you know, going from the beginning of our conversation where you mentioned your work in Madagascar and you were like, I don't, I don't want to do that <laughs> kind of interdisciplinary stuff. And now that's exactly kind of what you're doing, it seems like. Um, and so uh, I'm curious to know kind of what advice you would give to, to students maybe in their undergrad um, who are thinking about maybe grad school or a career in, in ecology. And, and so now from, from your perspective um, at this point in your career, what, what advice would you give? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, and you know, obviously I'm, I, I supervise students and I give advice and, and quite often it's, it's, it needs to be tailored a little bit to what the what the individual wants or desires, but, um, and, 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 you know, which, which trajectory they feel like they're on, but, uh, in general, um, the, you know, when I was a, when I was a grad, so let me back up when I was a grad student, um, you know, it was all about publishing papers and applied was a dirty word. Um, so when I was a PhD student, it was very much, you needed to have those fundamental science papers, and applied was what people did kind of on the side, but you didn't really get credit for it. Today, that's changed quite a bit. Um, and so what I recommend to, to graduate students is you need to be multifaceted. So you need, you need to have the um, scientific production 
So you need to be knowledgeable about topic X, whatever that is. Um, so you need to have those articles that establish your uh, credentials and your uh, and your knowledge base in a certain area. But at the same time, uh, today you need to think about the implications for society and policy, um, and you need to think about how to communicate um, that to the public or to policymakers. And so. This means that for a graduate student today, um, it's, it's, it's quite a bit more stressful, right? Because when I was in grad school, I can just bury my head in a book and go to the library for eight hours a day and just write and analyze or do my experiments in the lab. Um, and that was really it. But um, uh, that's a bit of an overstatement, but, but in reality, that's what was valued. And so today, um, that same student not only needs to do the experiments and do the studies and, and get to know a certain topic area in detail, they also need to be thinking about uh, what is their communication strategy? Um, who are they communicating with? How are they going to evaluate impact? And so my recommendation to students is to think about engagement early on when they're doing a project, who they're going to engage with, are there non-academic partners that would that would generally benefit from the stuff they're doing? Have early conversations with them, bring them on board. Um, it really helps the science. It helps the communication strategy, um, and uh, and also uh, I would encourage students to collaborate with people outside their discipline. So we had this. You know, we'd already talked a bit about interdisciplinarity. Um, even if you're not training yourself to be using tools from multiple disciplines, it still helps to talk to people from other disciplines that might uh, be willing to work with you or take what you've done and apply it in a certain way. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's, I think it's tougher to be a grad student today. I, I really do. It's multiple pressures. Some students do really well because they thrive on this aspect of, of the application of science or the communication of science. And, and so there are new niches for people, but that's why more and more graduate programs have courses in science communication. Uh, in policy, in applied aspects, um, reflecting the need to have that type of training. Mm -hmm. What's your sense of the, you know, the academic job market these days in terms of prospects and with more and more PhDs, I don't know what the number is. It's, you know, probably in the hundreds of thousands that are coming out each year now. What, what's your sense of, like, you've likely been on many, many hiring committees and all these sorts of things. What, what's your take on prospects for, you know, about to graduate PhDs? It's, yeah, that's a good question. And it's complicated, the answer to that. If you're looking at just academic jobs, then there's more competition today than there was, uh, say, 15 years ago. Um, but I can remember when I when I was a postdoc applying for jobs, I had I had one year where well I over two years I had about twelve interviews, um, and even at those jobs, you know they were getting eighty or one hundred and twenty applicants, mm -hmm. and so today it's not too much higher than that um, for for a job, um, but generally people are better fit to the job. So there's more intense competition mm -hmm. and, and uh, people's records are stronger on average. So again, competition is a little bit more intense. Um, and, you know, academic jobs are so ephemeral and stochastic and where they are, how many they are, you know, one year there could be 10 in your exact discipline. The next year there could be one. Um, so still that. So mm -hmm. academic jobs, a bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. However, I feel like the um, the number of jobs outside of academia has grown quite a bit in the past 15 years. Um, there's a better understanding of those jobs. Like when I was in grad school, if someone was to ask, oh, what jobs outside of academia are there? The professors and the grad students would be like, I don't know. Um, I guess this, I guess this. But if you ask uh, people today that same question, they would immediately identify because we interact with people who have PhDs in the Toronto Region Conservation Authority in Parks Canada, in Ontario Nature, in the City of Toronto, uh, in Nature Conservancy of Canada. We have these interactions with people that um, that have gone through the same training but have gone off in a different way. So I think there's more role models now, and there's and and there's just um, you know the green sector 
you know, I can only speak about Canada really, but I imagine this is true in other countries as well, but the green sector has grown so much over the past 20 years. So, you know, the, the number of consulting companies, the, uh, the number of NGOs that are working to protect and manage land, uh, regional conservation authorities and the amount of scientific staff they have, it's all grown. That's not to say there isn't a lot of competition and you, you still have to do networking and still get to know people. It's all true, but but the reality is there's more options today for someone coming out with a PhD than there was when I came out with a PhD. Um, and, and when I came out with a PhD, you kind of had to create your job if you weren't going into academia. Um, and today it's less true. You don't, you don't have to go and sort of get funding or create a small NGO yourself in order to, to, to make money. Now there's, there's very professional NGOs that hire staff. So, so it's a mixed bag, um, more competition, but also more diversity and more opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. We spoke to um, uh, Jody Hilty from Yellowstone to Yukon. And that's one of those um, organizations where, you know, there's science happening internally and they're connected to academia, but also connected to other worlds as well. And we're, you know, those networking skills and communication skills that you were referring to. Um, that's the type of place where that gives you that, that leg up um, to access those places. Right. Yeah. And I would, I would, say to students today, you know, have a really honest conversation with yourself and those around you about what you want to do. And, 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 you know, it's not to say you need to, you need to, you know, exactly what you're going to do, but at least know, you know, do I want to go in academia, um, whether it's teaching or research, or is that really not for me? And that's okay. When I was a grad student, that was a not an okay answer. <laughs> but today it's an okay answer because um, if, you, if you feel like um, academia is not the path for you, then early on what you need to do and make, is to make those connections is, is to tailor your project to, uh, to have some co-creation from non-academic organizations or partners to engage those people not only because it's going to make your, what you actually do more applicable to an outside job, but it's going to create a network. Um, and you're going to, you're going to meet people. You're going to learn about opportunities. And so that should be something that happens early on instead of the, the last year when you say, you know, I don't like this academia thing. And then you're like, Oh God, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pursuing those opportunities, those connections early on is, is really quite critical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to join us today, Mark. We really appreciated hearing your story and all the work you're doing. You're doing so many things. I don't know how you pull it all off, frankly, <laughs> but it's uh, fantastic. And uh, the great perspective for upcoming students, I think, is invaluable as well. So we really appreciate your time. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I, I enjoyed talking about science and urban systems and publishing and training <laughs> all, all these things that, you know i'm very passionate about all these things and so i, I, I enjoy having conversations about them thanks <laughs> all right thanks a lot